0: Today's scripture reading is taken from the book of James, chapter 3, verse 17, to chapter 4, verse 10, which can be found on your pew Bibles on page 1198, 1196. Book of James, chapter 3, verse 17, to chapter 4, verse 10. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near you. Wash your your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God, and He will lift you up. The second scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 19, which can be found on your Pew Bibles, page 1124. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church.
1: It's really good to see you guys. You're very, very attractive people. Um, I'm super excited to get to preach here this morning, and very excited to be preaching in this series. A series on how we live together and how we fight together and how we stumble together towards being the community of God. A place and a people where others might come to know his goodness on earth as it is in heaven. And Phil and Nick have been leading us through this series so far. I don't know about you, but I feel like I've gotten a few good, like, ooh. Ah, that in my life, like that good sermon around the, the log in my own eye and the speck in another's, which just we just pause and, and congratulate Phil. I thought he did really good physical humor in that particular sermon. I'm all about the physical humor, also great theology, but Nick last week preached a zinger of a message. You guys, the whole time, I just I sat in the pew and I was like, say it, do it, say it, that's right. And most of my heart in that was about calling out other people around me. That's right, Nick, you tell those people to be better. And then he was all like, and how about how you feel about the rich? And I was like, go, 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 go. Good to call me out too, Nick. I appreciate that. Today, I am preaching about sinful attitudes and behaviors. It's a lovely sermon title. Super glad I got uh, designated with this one. And I was like, "What do What do we do? How do we do this sermon well? I'm not really sure." So I had an idea, and I was workshopping it with some friends. I thought, you know, the tricky thing about sin is that we're always wondering, like, "What is it? And am I doing it? And is this it? You know, you're trying to categorize." And I just thought. Wouldn't it just be easier and better if, as a church, we just figured some of that out? So we're just going to play a little game called sin or no sin. Um, We're going to have some words up on the screen. And if it's a sin, I just want your hands up, okay? And uh, someone, I don't know, maybe Sam or communications will make a list and we'll send it home with you next week, okay? So hands up. Sin or no sin? Okay, all right, good, great. Um, Sin or no sin? Yes, church, you're doing so well. Sin or no sin? Yeah, all right. Sin or no sin? Oh, hesitation, church. Okay, see, I figured this would happen. I was like, I don't know about this sin or no sin game because we might get into some tricky situations, right? Some spaces where, well, I'm not really sure about that one. Stealing, yes, but... What about the things I buy that exploit workers in their labor? Is that stealing too? Right? Murder, yes, okay, but what about the behaviors that I undergo that actually diminish the life and the value of others' lives? What about that stuff? Plus, lists of do's and don'ts are almost always what ruins the church, so we're going to preach instead through James. Today, we're talking about personal sin. Last week, Nick was focusing a bit more on on bigger systemic sin issues. And the thing about sin is this. It is not either or, right? Communal or personal, systemic or, or individual. It's both and, always, always. And some of us, some of us here today, may gravitate more towards one than the other. In fact, we all do. For some of us, it's very very, very easy when we think about God and what he wants for us to think about our own personal sins. Am I doing the right things? Am I honoring God? And not look at the bigger patterns that we, our culture, our nation are participating in in the world that damage the shalom hopes of God. But the opposite is also true for some of us. For some of us, we get so overwhelmed with those bigger systemic issues right? With the bigger patterns that we see in the world that we ignore our own personal sin. And if we focus on one and don't look at the other, we're not going to get much better together. We're not going to pursue shalom and the peace of God. So we are going to look today at this scripture in James. Romans is also part of our scripture. That's kind of a catch-all. We're all going to do the best we can to try and get some peace up in here. So Romans. But we're going to focus on James. Uh, James, um, scholars debate, but generally concur uh, that this, this book was written by this guy we call James the Just, around in the time of Jesus. Uh, he, as, as a man leading in the Jerusalem church, okay? So he's writing mostly to Jewish Christians. Um, he's beloved of the poor. The poor actually of all stripes love him. Christians, non-Christians, doesn't really matter. He's highly regarded by people as someone who pursues justice and is upright and upstanding in the community. Except the aristocrats don't like him too much, okay? Generally, um, the the aristocrats don't like him because he has a few things to say (laughs) about what's going on in his society about the hoarding that the rich are doing, about the way even within the Jewish system and within the church that there are divisions between the rich and the poor. Right? There's a lot to say about that. In fact, he is martyred eventually uh, by aristocratic priests um, a little bit after he writes this. And he writes this around 30 years or so after the death of Jesus. As it turns out, he happens to be Jesus' brother. Which is like... I don't know if any of you guys have interesting siblings who outshine you, but um, I have an older brother, Ben. He's two years older than me. Uh, he he raised me in like just this intellectual, academic boot camp. Like, I can remember coming home from school, I'm like in the fourth grade, he for fun in the sixth grade is re- reading books about physics, and he's like, Fiona, if you were standing on a car and it was going 60 kilometers an hour, and you turned around and threw a ball to another car that actually was on top of a train, what would be the velocity? And I'm like, I'm in the fourth grade, man. What do I care? My brother, uh, he, when he was in university, he saw a poster for an LSAT exam that weekend, I'm telling you, on a whim, registers for the LSATs, takes them, and places in the 97th percentile, okay? This is the brother that I grew up with, all right? So I get something about like, you know, family dynamics, but that's nothing compared to James. James had Jesus, okay? Great comparisons. But we would hope that that meant that he learned something as well, that he walked alongside, that he was at dinner tables with, and as he did ministry, among jesus and the other disciples that he picked up on some essential truth of the gospel and that they sunk deep within him essential truths of the gospel are hard to have to sink into us and so we are going to uh, read this scripture together i'm going to read a bit i'm going to tell you some thoughts we're going to read a bit That's how this sermon's gonna go. Um, I've chosen a translation called The Voice, which is a newer translation, is translated by artists and creatives, which is just my cup of tea, and it sounds pretty cool. So read this with me, church. This is James 3, 17 to 18. Heavenly wisdom centers on purity, peace, gentleness, deference, mercy, and other good fruits untainted by hypocrisy. The seed that flowers into righteousness will always be planted in peace by those who embrace peace. This is how James sets out this section. He sets out this the chapter actually by saying, be careful about being a teacher. Like if you don't have to be a teacher, you shouldn't be a teacher because it's like really high standard. So, but that's neither here nor there. Heavenly wisdom centers on this purity, on this peace. And he says the deal with it is that it only happens, peace that is among you, peace that will be in your community, only happens if it is rooted, if it is planted in peace by peace. Basically just trying to make an argument that you don't get one without the other, that peace cannot be rooted in malice. It can't be rooted in evil. It can't be rooted in uh, self-righteousness or a desire to control others. You can shine things up and make them look kind of peasy, but when the rubber hits the road, it's going to fall apart. If you want to see peace in your community, you got to start from the bottom. All right, we're going to keep reading. You can, you can read with loud voices together with me. Ready? I know I have a microphone, so think of how loud you have to be. Three, two, one. Where do you think your fighting and endless conflict come from? Don't you think that they originate in pursuit of gratification that rages inside each of you like an uncontrolled militia? You crave something that you do not possess, so you murder to get it. You desire the things you cannot earn, so you sue others and fight for what you want. You do not have because you have chosen not to ask. And when you do ask, you still do not get what you want because your motives are all wrong, because you continually focus on self-indulgence. Dang, James, he is a thought. Sometimes I just think we should just read scripture aloud and forget the preaching. But I also like to preach, so I'm going to tell you what I think about this. He says, if you're looking at your community, if you're looking at your lives together, if you're looking at all of these struggles happening on the surface, and you're only looking at the surface, you've missed it, you've missed it. The problem is not up here. The problem is not the fruit. The problem is the tree. So what's going on inside you is a pursuit of things you do not need to pursue. And in your disappointment at not being able to get them, you sacrifice the lives and the well-being of the people around you either to distract from or to cover up or in some desperate attempt to finally get what you want. You shouldn't be surprised at this fruit. Look at what the tree is. Let's keep going. Again, loud voices. You are adulterers. Don't you know that making friends with this corrupt world order is open aggression towards God? So Anyone who aligns with this bogus world system is declaring war against the one true God. Do you think it is empty rhetoric when the scriptures say, the spirit that lives in us is addicted to envy and jealousy? Man, I love this guy. I wanna just give us a little caveat about what he's saying about being friends with the world and the world order. I chose this translation in particular because a lot of translations say um, you're friends with the world. And I think oftentimes we can get that a little confused uh, as Christians and as the church in terms of what is actually being said here. I say this in particular because I was preaching yesterday about evangelism and our need to be friends with the world. Right? And sometimes we get this confused. We as Christians decide to gather into this holy huddle where we say the way to be safe is to only know each other. It would be awful. It would be evil. It would be wrong to make friends with those outside our doors. That's not what James is warning against. It's Not warning against friendship with other people, with the beloved of God in our city, in our world, in our neighborhoods. He's criticizing the idea of cozying up to the world order, to this bogus world system, to this idea that it's me against the world, that it's dog-eat-dog, dog, that I need to watch my own back and step on whoever I need to to get to the top. But That's the world order, right? If you're not doing so well, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and clamor to the top, And if there's an opportunity, if there's an opportunity to step on another, if there's an opportunity to exploit another, if there's an opportunity to push somebody else aside, well, they're gonna do it to you if you don't do it to them and you don't wanna be the loser. So go ahead, do it. That's the order of the world that we live in. It's nothing new, it's not 2019. It was as true 2,000 years ago. And even within the religious system, even within the religious system that James was brought up in, division between rich and poor, a clamoring towards power of some, a neglect of others, even though God's word from the very beginning has been about a heart for others and a heart for community, even still, People deciding that it was okay to cut corners as long as they arrived on top. When James here says, do you think it is empty rhetoric when the scriptures say the spirit that lives in us is addicted to envy and jealousy? That quote, though put in quotation marks, you you can't find that direct thing anywhere in scripture. He's just summarizing. He's like, if you've been paying attention to the story so far, you will realize that we always are people, wanting what we don't have, thinking we need things that others have, upset when we see the success of others, ready to grumble and quarrel, rather than support, encourage, and lift up. He says, it's been the story like this since the beginning. So I thought, let's think about the beginning for a second. Okay. It's really, really fun if you search Adam and Eve kids Bible stories and just watch YouTube videos for a little bit. Some would say that's procrastinating on writing your sermon, but who knows? Adam and Eve, okay, so I just wanna like put out there, I think we don't understand a lot about this story and I think that this picture sums that up super, super, super well. First of all, um, I'm not quite sure if if it's translating color-wise, but according to my picture, these two people are white people, which that seems weird, Um, Number two, I don't really know. Like, was there a barber in the garden that cut Adam's hair short but left Eve's long? That doesn't really make very much sense to me. Or did she just like come out of the rib with long hair and he's just fell out? I'm not quite sure what's going on. Also, why an apple? Who would give up the kingdom? Who would give up the garden for an apple? Mangoes, pineapples, you guys, there's better fruit. Okay, so I'm just going to say, we don't understand this story. A lot of the times what we think this story is about, when we look back at this beautiful narrative about the very beginning and the way that God and people were, right? We talk a lot, and there's truth in this. I'm not saying there's not truth in this, but we talk a lot about people's desire to rebel against God. But Adam and Eve and just this evil in their heart, this desire to rebel, this serpent telling them to do that, their decision, yeah, that's all we want to do. And from the beginning, this desire to sin, this desire to do the wrong thing. But see, the story of Adam and Eve actually goes like this, right? It goes like God built this beautiful garden. You've never been to a more beautiful place with all this different vegetation, with all these different animals, it was lovely. There was opportunity to, to work in that garden in a way that felt good to plant and to tend with the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There was this beautiful thing that was happening and God made people, he made man. He said, it's not good for man to be alone, he made woman. He said, you guys get to hang out forever with me in this garden where there's a lot more fruit than apples. You get to hang out here together. And what happened one day was that the serpent came to Eve and what the serpent did not say is, hey, do you want to rebel? That's not what the serpent said. The serpent introduced the idea of eating from this tree And when Eve protested, when she said, I'm not sure, I don't think we're supposed to do that, God said, no. The serpent said, God tells you not to eat from this tree because he is competing with you. He says don't eat from this tree because he doesn't want you to become wise like him. He wants to separate you from himself. He hopes that you have less power than he does. He's into hoarding not generosity he's into keeping for himself not helping you out if you want to have a chance you've got to get yours the story of sin right we call that sin the fall this original sin the story is not about rebellion the story is about misbelieving instead of understanding God is good and generous and made you in his very image, in the image of love. The original sin is about believing that you were actually made as a pawn. You were actually made as an enemy of God. You were actually made as something that he's going to oppress, and therefore he is one that you must defend against. Okay, this is original sin. If the serpent is right, right? Like, let's just, I know we're in church, so we're like super not supposed to say that, but imagine if the serpent is right, then it just follows. God is the enemy, right? That's how we need to think about God. We are on our own. You are on your own in this world. And all is justified. All is justified in the name of self-protection. Cheating, lying, stealing, murder, of course, all is justified. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you be suspicious about the people in your neighborhood, about the people in the pew beside you, if you're on your own and at the end of the day, it's about your capacity to save yourself? If the serpent is right, that's the thing that we have to believe. In a dog-eat-dog world, We judge ourselves by our intentions and other people by their actions, and that's the smart thing to do if you're on your own. So when I have interactions in my church community, when I have a conversation with someone that gets a little testy or I disagree with someone about something, I judge what happened by what they did and by what I was hoping to do. Does that make sense? And do we see how that leads us down very, very dark roads? Any of you who are in close relationships, a close friend, a familial relationship, a marriage, knows exactly what this is like. Right? But I meant, and he did. We finger point like that. Thanks, Ashley. We're not allowed to be people who say, I wonder what she meant. I wonder what he was trying to do. And when someone says, but you did, we say, how dare you? What I meant to do was. Now, I also want to be very clear, because I think that sometimes, and particularly people in positions of power, which I am via the fact that I'm on a stage, I'm also a white person, I'm straight, I live in Canada, oftentimes people in powerful positions can talk about the difference between intent and impact. And I just want to be really clear, your impact does matter. Right? Your impact does matter. So if you're engaging with a person and you say, but I was trying hard, it matters if you hurt them, right? Like, I didn't mean to punch you in the face when I was flailing my arms. If you make contact, you should still be sorry. But it's also important that we are people who pause and say, am I considering the intentions of the other? Or am I just judging the impact? Am I giving benefit of the doubt? Am I moving closer? In a dog-eat-dog world, you don't have time to do that. Self-examination also is dangerous in a dog-eat-dog world. Right? I don't have time to stop and pause and say, did I do that thing wrong? Because if it's up to you, if you're on your own in an ocean without a lifeboat, to keep yourself above water, you can't pause. Any of you ever tried treading water? It takes constant energy, right? You ever seen a person who's near drowning be saved from that experience? They will literally drown a person trying to save them in order to keep their head above the water. If it is up to you to save yourself, there is no way to be generous. Grace is a fool's errand. It's exactly how you are going to be disappointed. It is exactly how you are going to be overlooked. It is exactly how you are going to be shamed when someone else beat you to the punch or climbed the ladder faster. And I want to be clear about the way then that this works out in terms of sin. It is either that we have no capacity to show grace to other people Right? We decide, I'm always right, and the thing I'm doing fi- is fine, and it was his fault or her fault or their fault. Or, we have no capacity to show grace to ourselves. Right? If the only way to survive is to earn my keep and earn my place, then I'm incredibly hypercritical of myself. I'm incredibly critical of the things that I do and the mistakes that I make, and I can never be loved, and I'll never be enough, and I spend my life clamoring towards something I can never actually attain. If the serpent is right in a dog-eat-dog world, you guys, we're in big trouble. That's why I want to posit a different suggestion. How about the serpent's a liar? And we can joke about this and we can laugh about this because you've been in church before and you've heard the serpent is a liar, but I tell you, we live like he's a very, very truthy guy. If the serpent is a liar, then God is who he says he is. God is love. Not just God loves, not just God's into love. God is love. God is the best good intention for you. God is about your thriving. God is about the intention that your life would be rooted in freedom and grace, that you would be rightly related to him, but also to other people, but also to the earth. If God is who he says he is, he planned the whole thing good from the beginning, and by his son and by his spirit is returning us all back to that shalom. If God is who he says he is, we were made in his image, which means that we bear the image Of love and can we have the space and the freedom to turn to the other not with suspicion but with generosity with interest with curiosity in how exactly it is that i am made in the image of god but you are too and what does that mean about god and what does that mean that he is like and what kind of joy does that mean that we get to partner in pursuing together church If the serpent is a liar, God is who he says he is, we are made in his image, then the truth is that there is no need for sin. Like, it is literally useless to us. You realize the only reason that we have to sin, and I say have to because really if you believe it, it's how you're going to act. The only reason you have to sin is if God's out to get you. The only reason you have to sin is if people are out to get you. The only reason you have to sin is if it's up to you to survive, but if God is actually for your good, if God has made you in His image, it is absolutely useless to sin. Instead, you can turn to the person in the pew next to you or in the house next to you or in the cubicle next to you. You can turn to them in generosity, in grace, and in love, in an outpouring of what God has done in you and in your life. And you don't need to be picky and choosy. You don't need to be graspy about the goodness that you have. You don't need to be careful about the resources that you share because the economy of the kingdom is one of abundance. So you've got more than enough. You've got more than enough. Stop building extra barns, you know? All right, we're going to read again. You guys ready? Three, two, one. You may think that the situation is hopeless, but God gives us more grace when we turn away from our own interests. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he pours out grace on the humble. So Submit yourselves to the one true God and fight against the devil and his schemes. If you do, he will run away in failure. Come close to the one true God and he will draw close to you. Wash your hands. You have dirtied them in sin. Cleanse your heart because your mind is split down the middle. Your love for God on one side and selfish pursuits on the other. You may think that the situation is hopeless. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I think about James writing this, and I think, did, did he imagine us 2,000 years in the future still struggling? Like, I wonder, if I was as you know, heavy-handed with the words as him, I would have maybe been like, there, we've fixed it. <laughs> and if I could see through into the future, oh, and us struggling yahoos, I might be like, guys, come on. I think the nice thing about James is that he's not God. And the nice thing about God is that he has a lot more patience for us than we have for each other, or than James might even have for us. You may think that the situation is hopeless. You may think, well, how's that gonna work? Because maybe I've caught a glimpse, maybe I've caught a bit of an understanding of what God is really like and what he really wants for me, but the world has no clue and my fellow church doesn't really know. <laughs> what are we going to do? And see, here is the beautiful thing about the gospel. Is that God says, I know. I am the one who holds this truth of this beautiful grace, and I have decided to partner with you to teach you about it. I've decided to be your friend. I've decided to show you I brought you some training wheels. We'll practice. And you've been planted, you've been placed in a community of people who, at least on some level, want to come practice too. You know, Kristen and Fran yesterday, they were leading a seminar on the Holy Spirit's role in evangelism. And so I stole this from them. Uh, They were talking about what it means to be in relationship with the Holy Spirit and figure that out. And and Kristen was mentioning how sometimes it can feel like really daunting, right? This huge, big thing. And he compared it to kind of, you know, sitting, watching TV, watching the Olympics and seeing an athlete do this amazing big thing. And how the funny thing is, sometimes when it comes to spiritual concepts, we think that we need to go from zero to 100. Whereas in other places in our life, we're willing to say, oh, maybe I won't join the Olympics tomorrow. Maybe I'll join a rec league, you know? Or maybe I'll try t-ball, because the ball literally just stands on top of a stick. No one has to pitch it to you. You can first work on just finding the ball with a bat. And I wonder if that is what pursuing peace in community is meant to be like. Not zero to 100, but baby steps in partnership with the Spirit. You may think that it's hopeless, but God says this. If you come close to me, I will draw close to you and I will teach you what it is to know that I am for you, you have been made in love, and you can be for these people. We all got hurt, we got pain, we all got distrust, and problems in our life that are hard to overcome. But you can choose, God has placed you in this community with people who are willing to practice with you. People in your home church, people on the team you serve with, people who have a coffee with you after service and say, that belief that God is for you, how are you doing with that? That belief that you can be for the people in this room, how are you doing with that? Because if we don't get set with that belief, our actions will never prove peaceful. Last part of Scripture, let's read it. Now is the time to lament, to grieve and to cry. Dissolve your laughter into sobbing and exchange your joy for depression. Lay yourself bare, face down to the ground, in humility before the Lord. And he will lift your head so you can stand tall. So there is a bit of like womp womp with that part of the scripture. The end part is nice, but the beginning is a little... But here's the thing about it. It's really important that we know how bad our sin is. Not so that we are people who walk around with our heads hung low, but so that we are people who know what poison is and stop trying to kill each other by accident. I didn't realize this was poison. I'm sorry I poured you a cup. That's kind of what we're doing in community a lot of the time, you know? I mean, I, I got it out of the poison jar. It doesn't have the skull and crossbones on it anymore. I dressed it up in this lovely glass, but then I gave it to you just the same, right? I was passive aggressive. I, I only told a white lie. I said bad things about you, but behind your back. You know? I, it, it's not that I told you I don't want to be your friend. I just always avoid you. And, and we think that that's, that's cool, right? We think that's just that's not a big deal. And James is trying to preach to the church. You remember he is in the early church, the early persecuted church, right? They're like, pfft. It's a hope and a prayer, will this thing last? We know that God is good, we know that He is great, but we're looking at the way we're doing this thing as humans and yikes. And he's saying, it matters. It really, really, really matters how you relate to each other. So church, you need to be sorry about your sin. You need to lament your sin. Again, not because of what a bad person you are, but because of how destructive it is to believe lies. And if you don't hate lies, how are you going to love the truth? If you don't hate lies, how are you going to love the truth? You've got to be a people who love the truth. See, we're wrapping up in case you're wondering time-wise, because I can go. (laughs) Here's how I think of this sometimes, the way that we are in community. I think about the idea of dandelions, of weeds. And I think about what exactly is happening when we just let them grow, when we just let them grow in our gardens. Initially, they look pretty nice, like the yellows are very bright. And it maybe takes a bit of time. This is a time-lapse video of a month, okay? So think about how much slower if you slowed it down. What happens with these dandelion heads, anybody here who knows anything about gardening knows, if you want to get rid of a dandelion, you can't just pick off the head of it, right? I I fear sometimes it's not just that we're trying to pick the heads off of our sinful behaviors. We're actually thinking, I know how to get rid of this thing. I know, I'll pick one one of these flowers with all the seeds and I'll just blow them away. You know how we do that in community sometimes? we think like under the rug that certainly will hide it (laughs) that's a great way to get rid of my sin just don't tell anybody about it (laughs) i'm sure that will produce healing and instead of being people who are willing to get down in the dirt and dig out some roots together right get dirt under our fingernails have a sore back for a little while we just want to get rid of them quick we just want to rip off the heads Friends, if we're gonna try and get rid of our sin, it literally is as foolish as picking the head off of a dandelion, as blowing the seeds away. It's that foolish to just try and change our behaviors. We gotta change what we're rooted in. Church, here's the gospel. You are the beloved of God, and your belovedness is non-negotiable. But better than that, It's not just a message for you. The you that God speaks is a y'all. God itself is a (laughs) y'all, is a community that says you all are beloved of God and your belovedness is non-negotiable. If you root in that, you want to know what grows? Peace and patience, kindness, generosity, the freedom for which you were set free. And we get, we get the opportunity to live that life, to root in the truth of belovedness, to root in the experience of generosity, and to see a garden grow that is not weeds, but that produces fruit, that feeds the people, that produces trees and branches where the birds find their home and their shelter. Church, that is the call of God. So roll up your sleeves. We got a garden to plant. You're gonna pray for us. Father God, you are a good good father. And we are loved by you and we thank you that even though we seem sometimes addicted to weeds that you are patient with us that you pursue to the end god we praise you for the hope that you have for our community and we declare our need for you to teach us how to garden, to uproot the lies. God, we pray against the work of the enemy that sees the good and beautiful garden that you have created and wants to destroy and wants to steal and wants to teach us to root in lies. So we throw ourselves on you and your grace. We ask for help. God, would you teach us, would you teach this church, would you teach this family how to root in love? So that we can act that out as well would you teach us how to pursue repentance to extend forgiveness and favor to receive the same would you allow us to catch a vision of your shalom of the community you have made us to be so that we might participate with you in the restoration of the world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.